Hi everyone, I'm Marie Nugent. I'm Community Manager for Diverse Data here at Genomics England and I'm really pleased to have with me today two very special guests. I have John James, CEO of the Sickle Cell Society and I have Susanna Kinsella from the James Lind Alliance and we're going to talk about the priority setting partnership that we're developing together as part of our Diverse Data Initiative here at Genomics England to focus on engaging patients and healthcare professionals so we can create a top 10 future research priority areas for sickle cell and genomics. So, John, I'd like to come to you first. If you could just introduce yourself and it would be lovely if you could give me a bit of a recap of the first time you came and interviewed for the G Word. You came and spoke to our CEO, Chris Wigley. It would be lovely to hear from you what you covered in that conversation and some of the work that you've been doing at the Sickle Cell Society since. And then we'll come to you, Susanna. Thank you, Marie. I'm John James. As Marie said, I'm the chief executive of the Sickle Cell Society. I remember it well because it was a few years ago when I met the chief executive of Genomics England and we had the first podcast about sickle cell. Why I remember it well is because I was arguing that why isn't there any action being taken by way of research and genomics for sickle cell? And so, Marie, it was effectively a call to action. Come on, Genomics England, you know, this is an important area. And in fairness to Chris, we are here today talking about the diverse data, which is specific work to help us prioritise what the research priorities for sickle cell should be. So it's taken a little longer than we would have liked as an organisation, but we're here now and I thank Chris and uh, Genomics England for responding to the call for action. Yeah, thank you, John. I mean, I, I had the the pleasure of listening to that podcast myself, and I must admit there did feel like a bit of a call to action there quite rightly, and it's wonderful to have you back with us now, I think three years after you got invited on. I think Chris said two, but there you go, we've made it. So, Susanna, it'd be lovely to come to you now, so if you could introduce yourself and the, the work that you do and the James Lind Alliance. So, there might not be many people who have come across that organisation before, so if you could just talk a little bit about the kind of work that that does, that'd be wonderful. Great. So, yes, I'm an advisor for the James Lind Alliance. So, the James Lind Alliance is really a methodology that is there to ensure that the voices of people with lived experience of health conditions and also health and care professionals really are brought to the fore when it comes to what matters, what are the really important questions for health and care research. So it was set up with that mantra to bring those voices to the fore rather than all research being designed and delivered and dictated by pharmaceutical companies, researchers, universities, etc., who all have, I'm sure, brilliant intentions, but they perhaps don't know what are the priorities, what are the questions that really matter to people who live with a condition and those who, who work with them. So the James and Alliance has been going for just shy of about 20 years and has run about 110, 120 priority setting partnerships over that time. But it's worth saying that this priority setting partnership will be a first for two reasons. It will be the first to look at priorities for sickle cell disease, and it will be the first that is completely focused to the area of genomics. 
I didn't realise it was 20 years, actually, that James Lind has been around. So I was very fortunate to come across the work of the organisation in my previous role. And I was just so excited to have the opportunity to bring that opportunity into the work that we're doing here through Genomics England to look at sickle cell. 120 as well. I mean, again, it's staggering, really, the, the body of work there. So it's a real privilege to have you with us to facilitate us through that process. Because at the end of the day, it's really focused on this sort of trust building methodology. And we recognize just how important it is that word trust, and to take a sort of trust leading the way, I suppose, approach to this work. So On that note, John, I think there's a wonderful opportunity here for you to maybe lay out a lot of the work that has come about over the last two to three years since you last came and spoke to us here. It would be great to hear some of the work that Sickle Cell Society has done, but maybe the work of the APPG and the report that was released. There's a lot of work now coming about as a result of that really important work. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about that, that would be fantastic. Happy to do so. So we've been on this journey at the Sickle Cell Society, and that journey is about addressing health inequalities that have affected the sickle cell population over many decades. And what I mean to be specific about health inequalities is a lack of research and funding, poor experience of people living with sickle cell for hospital services, particularly accident and emergency premature deaths of young people living with sickle cell. And that journey took us to a point where we had a young man called Evan Nathan Smith who died at North Middlesex Hospital in really challenging circumstances. And and that was a catalyst to say, we can't go on like this. Improvement needs to be made. Outcomes need to improve more research for sickle and all these things. So what we've been able to achieve in that time is we have, for example, got NHS England to agree adult transplantations, which weren't available for Mm. adults with sickle cell who other treatments didn't work. And and I say other treatments because it's back to health inequalities. Mm -hmm. Those other treatments, you can count them on one thumb or finger. It's the standard treatment is hydroxycarbamide, which has been around for 30 years, 18 months ago, we got a new disease-modifying treatment called Krizunlobab, Advakio. So the point about transplantation policy is that our position is that there needs to be a range of more options of curative options and disease-modifying treatments. And that was a success in terms of getting NHS England to fund adult transplants. And the No One's Listening report, which was the catalyst of Evan's death, of course, people died before Evan and people have died since Evan, but it was the catalyst to say we can't go on like this. And um, the No One's Listening report highlights, based on evidence, this is patients, parents from across the country expressing their dissatisfaction with aspects of services. And that report has proved to be exceedingly helpful in getting NHS England, NHS Trust, the Department of Health to begin to listen. So there was no mistake in call it no one's listening. But, you know, the the simple answer is people are beginning to listen. I'm not complacent and think that Mm. because they're listening that that will result 
in immediate changes. But I can today say that there are plans from NHS England to look at how people can bypass A&E. The evidence shows that if you get to your specialist in time, you'll get a better outcome. There are plans to have a digital care record. There are plans to improve take-up of prescriptions through low-income schemes and prepayment schemes. And there is work on genomics (laughs) that uh, NHS are doing. Now, these things, when I spoke to your chief executive, were not even on the agenda. So those are examples of the progress that we're making. And as I say, I don't want to be complacent. We still have a long way to go, but those things have started and hopefully will come to a positive conclusion, which at the end of the day, which links to what um, Susanna said, is that we want better outcomes for patients and more equitable funding and care. Absolutely. So I just want to share a, a, a bit of a reflection, I suppose, because, you know, here at Genomics England, this is the first time we are looking at sickle cell. This is a new area for me personally. And of course, there's been a lot to learn and a lot to consider. And I think that it's fair to say that I've learned through looking at sickle cell, almost how you can look at what's missing as an indicator of inequality, because it really is quite stark when you do start looking at these things and you start making comparisons. And so we've got this wonderful challenge here in what we're trying to do where you've quite rightly John sort of said to us you mean you've you've got this extensive background and career and experience in working within the NHS you know you've told us quite clearly that we have to do quite a bit of work to raise the awareness of genomics Mm -hmm. we also have to do quite a lot of work to build the relationships and connections in in the area of sickle cell not just with the patients of that area, but actually specialists in this are sometimes few and far between. And then what we're trying to do with the James Lind Alliance and with Susanna's wonderful help is almost bring these two very niche, potentially for a lot of people, areas together and almost look for where where do these things really come together to bring benefit to patients. So yeah, that's definitely something that I'm sort of appreciating. I didn't know if you either of you wanted to sort of say a little bit more about that. And I think this is where what comes in is the way in which we're going to have to tweak the process, the JLA process. So let me just briefly explain. A standard JLA process kind of has three main parts. We go out to the community of the health condition and ask everyone, and by everyone, as I said, I mean people affected, directly affected by the condition and the specialists who work with them. And we ask them, what are your questions for research? Now, We're talking about genomics and we're talking about sickle cell. And whilst people would probably be able to say, these are the questions I have about my treatment, about living with sickle cell, about caring for someone with sickle cell, if you put the word genomics in there, they might have a big question mark in their head and saying, well, what's that got to do with my condition? So we're going to change the process. Instead of doing just a carte blanche survey, we're going to do a a more gradual kind of thoughtful information sharing process where we will show people and take people through what are the opportunities, what are the potential around genomics and sickle cell and get them to think about, okay, this really 
could be something that could be amazing for me or it could be amazing for my children or, or other parts of my community. And then use that to take it into the second stage, which would be a prioritizing shortlisting survey. So we would, out of these conversations, focus groups, discussions, deliberative workshops with both healthcare professionals and with people with sickle cell disease, gather up their priorities and then take them into a survey, which we would again reach out to a, as wide a group as we can get from the sickle cell community and specialists and ask them to say, of these, which do you think are the 10 that matter most to you? And then the final piece in this puzzle, the third part of the JLA process would be to run a final workshop with about 30 people where we would come together and through a process of consensus discussion is to then come together and agree what are the 10 most important questions. So it's a tweak on the process, but it's one that's necessary so that people can really understand what is genomics when it comes to sickle cell. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to break down. And so over to you, John. Yeah, what what Suzanne has just described is really really important because it's a um, it, it, it's an important process, and part of that process, I have to say, is about building up trust with the sickle cell community. Trust is really important. We've seen scepticism during COVID about new vaccines. There are new treatments coming out um, beyond transplantation for gene therapy uh, for sickle cell. And therefore, when you introduce the word genomics, the question will be, well, what, what? what, yeah, <laughs> what what's that going to, to do? So, which is why Susanna's um, deliberative process is so important and that we spend time with the community answering questions and clarifying so that we get the best outcome of which of the areas that we need um, uh, we need to focus on. So I think that we are doing this differently and that is recognising that the sickle community you know have faced disparities and other issues so we need to um, spend the time to work through the issues with them. And part of it, and I remember saying to your chief executive, part of it is what can genomics do for sickle cell? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're looking forward to do the work with you and the James Lind Alliance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I genuinely am really looking forward to getting all of this started because I think, again, a, a reflection, if you like, of all the groundwork we've got to do in terms of being able to get people to the point where they can actually start making these decisions about priority areas, it really does just show the kind of gap in knowledge that would be needed across the board, whether they are people in communities, whether they are patients for different areas, whether they are healthcare professionals themselves. Again, there's this unique and exciting challenge of how do we bring these two areas together to kind of really bring maximum benefit to patients. So taking this approach where we essentially have to think a lot about how are we training and informing healthcare professionals along the way as well. There's an interesting element to that that I don't know, Susanna, whether you've had to almost take that similar approach in other priority setting partnerships that you've been able to deliver. Has there been almost an equivalent sort of skills or knowledge gap in a particular element that you've had to sort of explore? And if so, if, is there anything that you could give us as tips along the way? That's a really interesting question. 
And I would say it's less of a knowledge gap than perhaps deep areas of expertise. So I'll give you an example, particularly where, for example, you might have surgical techniques, for example, where, of course, you, you and I would be asleep for. So we have no idea whether the surgeon's using X technique or Y technique and why that would matter. So yes, so sometimes, for example, the surgeon says, we desperately need to do research on this particular technique, X or Y or whatever, and that would be quite lost on, on the individual. So in which case, we really need to express it in terms that they will understand, avoid using, you know, crazy medical clinical terms that would just, you know, completely blow your mind. But it's a really important question that would really dramatically change patient outcomes if they knew, actually. Mm. We don't just go and base it on what, what Dr. X has, has said for the past 25 years. We need to base it on evidence. So I guess more around helping everyone understand particular possible interventions that need to be explored and understood. And so we do that by making sure the language is accessible, getting rid of jargon wherever we possibly can, and using any explanations that kind of examples, for example, that will help people navigate and understand the potential priority that's there. Thank you. I just wanted to also come back to this word trust. And we, we've talked about this a lot already in our conversations together. And it's something that we're all incredibly passionate about. And I think we recognise just how vital it absolutely is. And just again, sort of recognise that we've got layers of trust to build here. Because genomics is a new and sometimes quite quickly developing technology. There are a lot of things about it that still needs to be figured out in a way that we're sort of bringing people along on this almost social contract way of thinking about things. So what I mean by that is how are we going out and having dialogue with people in wider society about where are your red lines, what would be good for you, what would be bad in your opinion in terms of say your data, how it's applied, um, who you want to be able to see that, under what conditions. And we're, we're trying to do that in a way that you know, we're addressing this need to build trust in genomics within the healthcare system. We're also needing to build trust in genomics and genomics medicine or personalised medicine and where that can get to the trajectory for this newly developing area. We need to also, of course, do that for wider society and, and the public. But we're now kind of trying to bring this, as, as we've said, to the, the sickle cell population. And I suppose, are there any sort of extra special considerations that we have to take, in your view, John, to do that well and really build that trust? I think that's a really important question. And I don't see what I'm about to say as anything controversial whatsoever. But I think there are two important factors about this piece of work and building up that level of trust. First of all, it's fair to say that many in the black community, I'm not talking about the sickle cell community, have known that over years through slavery, through other things that have happened over many, many years, that many black and brown people have been experimented on, yeah. you know, so uh, that that is a fact. So there can be scepticism about what these new, you know, developments, and particularly genomics, because not many people know what it means for the future. So I think trust is part of addressing myths and busting myths and allowing people to feel safe to be able to share their opinions in a safe space, whether they 
understand, agree, or have whatever views about it. We want to get rid of myths and um, concerns, and the way to do that is to build up that body of trust and, as Susanna says, explain things in a way that isn't academia or anything like that. And I think that helps to build up the trust, which is why I'm very, very supportive of the process that the James and the Alliance are proposing for Sickle Cell. Susanna, in your view, do you think that there are extra special considerations that do need to be taken into consideration when you're doing, say, for example, priority setting partnerships, delivering these exercises in trust building that need to be taken into account for, say, people who do have, say, certain lived experiences or certain historical or social cultural context that they're coming from that essentially there are very good reasons as to why maybe people are not forthcoming when it comes to getting involved in research. And I think it all comes down to that word research. And it links back to what John said earlier, that actually, if you hear the word research, and you think, well, why should I be bothered about that? Because the history of it, it is, it's, it's excluded me. Not only that, it's, it's actually exploited me. So we have to understand that for some people, the word research is brilliant and exciting and offers potential, but for others, it actually means something negative and, you know, oppressive and not so good. So I think we need to start with that and we need to think about the language that we use and talk about more in terms of what are the outcomes. Research is a mechanism, but what are the outcomes? What could change in the way in which genomics could have an impact on sickle cell and really make that clear all the way along. So it wouldn't surprise me if actually, you know, we don't hang everything on the word research, but we talk about what's the potential for genomics in this area for this condition, what's unique to this condition, and how it can perhaps lead to the wider objective of creating a more diverse data set for the whole genomics field, and also being exemplar for that so that it's, it doesn't start and stop with sickle cell, but looks across conditions so that you know you could lead to priority setting in other conditions that, that also have been perhaps underrepresented in this area. Can I just quickly add to something and, and again Susanna makes a really important point about the connotations of the word research to different groups and it's a really important point and one of the contradictions in, in, in the work that we'll be doing uh, as a collaborative is that so first of all there's not much choice of available treatments for sickle cell. But what's important is that there is this feeling of, within the community, of wanting to have more choice, wanting to have a better quality of life because of the lived experience and so forth. And potentially, genomics is one of those potential solutions. So on the one hand, you have people who will be sceptical of mm. research but if it's presented in a research way so we have to find ways of not making it you know th this isn't about researching you or it's about trying to find the right solutions so you or your children in the future with sickle cell have a better quality of life mm. and I just want to add that there is this appetite from many in the community to see improvement to see change but to enable that, you have to follow a process that builds that trust and isn't just labelled as 
as researchers, um, Susanna has said. And just to say that I think what's abundantly clear is that it doesn't just happen, does it? It won't just naturally happen as a result of doing research with good intentions. You have to be really quite proactive and intentional about building that into how you're going to go about even thinking about the research you do and want to do and why. And what are you starting with? And I just want to pick up on some of the words that we've been using here, impact and outcomes and trust. You know, these are words that you know, we, we use really intentionally in this world of work. So I just want to bring us to the kind of impact we want to see, I suppose. So something that I really am excited by with this opportunity to work so closely with you both and go out and spend all this time and effort sort of bringing a load of different people who have various lived experience with sickle cell, whether they are people living with the condition, supporting those with the condition, whether they're healthcare professionals or provide care in some sort of way. And just having the opportunity to kind of have those interactions, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And it's not only a, a privilege for me to be able to work with people that have just got such incredible resilience um, and generosity, actually, when it comes to it. I'm learning so much along the way already. And I just wanted to sort of, share with you, I suppose, um, an insight that I've sort of noticed already just from some of the very early conversations that I've had. And it's that, you know, sometimes there are words like hard to reach that are used uh, in the context of research engagement. And it's abundantly clear to me that, you know, people aren't hard to reach. They're quite easy to ignore, though. And I've had the chance to speak to, you know, a small group of, of people with sickle cell and quite rightly, you know, Susanna, when, we, when you were talking to John and I about, you know, whether we, we could do this work together, you said to me, well, have you spoken to patients? And what do they think about doing something on genomics? And I said that, actually, I'm really pleased to say that there is something about a new area that's being developed, a new technology, a new opportunity that despite all the difficulty, all the baggage that we're sort of referring to here, they are so pleased and so enthusiastic to see a new area focus on sickle cell. And they are just, again, the generosity that I'm talking about here really comes into play here where they absolutely acknowledge that I might not be the beneficiary of the kind of research that can happen as part of this process, but I am more than willing to contribute to this if it means that future generations do not have to deal with the kind of challenging, you know, experiences that I've had to face. So I just wondered if you wanted to sort of comment on that kind of thing as well, John. Yeah, well, that, that links in part to what I said before about this contradiction of the so-called community wanting to see change. But why do they want to see change? Because it has been ignored. Uh, Sickle has been completely ignored for decades and decades. And I think when you talk to individuals um, living with sickle cell, they want to see change. And some of them, I have to say, are very angry about why is it taken so long for either people to listen or services to improve when, and this is no criticism of my colleagues in the Cystic Fibrosis Society, but if you compare the two, there are lots and lots and lots, uh, hundreds I'm talking about, treatments for CF. 
and there are two treatments for sickle cell, licensed treatments that, yeah. you know, uh, and, and the sickle community know that yes. and ask the question, why? So, you know, this is part of wanting to see change and the opportunities that Genomics England, the James England Alliance and the Sickle Cell Society, and of course, healthcare professionals and people with lived experience need to do this work. Uh, And I'm pleased that, you know, because I haven't been part of those conversations that you've had with uh, individuals, but uh, I'm pleased that, you know, that's what you've picked up, which is consistent with what we know in the Sickle Cell Society. And, And the last thing that I would say is that your point about resilience, think about you know, people of a particular age, the 70s weren't that long ago. But in the 70s, doctors and nurses and indeed parents and individuals didn't understand what the condition was. And there was no treat. This, you know, 70s wasn't that long ago. Uh-huh. The reason I mention that is a really big shout to the resilience that you mention of parents and individuals with uh, sickle cell um, to carry on Mm -hmm. uh, decade after decade uh, trying to find a voice. And um, uh, you'll have picked this up from some of the people that um, you've spoken to, but it's well known in the sickle community that individuals are known as warriors. Um, So uh, (laughs) across the world. uh, So that is why this resilience piece is exactly why, whether it's in the UK, the United States, Africa, the Caribbean, India, uh, Brazil, they call themselves, Mm -hmm. and we support them in doing that, call themselves warriors, because it's part of the resilience that they've had to deal with over many, many years. So just coming back, as I say, about sort of impact and the kind of sort of impact that we want to see, I think for me, it's about, I want people to sort of be able to walk away from this process that we'll go through together to create this top 10 future research priorities, feeling that they have really contributed positively to rallying research around the areas that will bring the most benefit to patients in the future. And if I can support people to sort of connect and share their stories and, you know, build their own knowledge and, you know, whatever it is else that they want to get from this process, then I know I can walk away from this happy that we've kind of set a national agenda and that we can do our job to support that to continue happening. What would you really like to see come about as a result of this, John, I suppose? Well, I agree with everything you say, because what we would want to see at the end as a national patient advocacy organisation is that there is a clear agenda for change around genomics Mm. that is informed by people living with the condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what we want to see, that there is a a forward agenda um, that is clear. But I'd also like to see, and it goes back to Suzanne's point, I'd also like to see that the processes that we've collectively used has gained the trust and the commitment and the interest and the insights of the people that we're working with. Because to get to that point of having an agenda of these are the three, four, five, six things that we're going to focus on for genomics and sickle cell, for that to be informed by a process that have built up trust and understanding is to be welcomed. So, Susanna, again, you're incredibly experienced in running these 
priority setting partnerships. In your view, what would real impact look like going through this process, particularly for sickle cell and genomics? I mean, it has to be that it goes beyond just being nicely illustrated top 10 list of priorities. Mm-hmm. It becomes real when it gets funded, when it mm-hmm. goes in and actually starts to change the way in which sickle cell is managed as a condition through genomics, managed, diagnosed, treated, etc. So that really has, and I, I'm really picking up, I love the term warrior, mm-hmm. because the easy bit is doing and agreeing what the top 10 bit, the bit yes. where the warrior mentality will really have to come in, is saying, this isn't this isn't just a nice list that you can wave at people and go, look at this work we did. Mm-hmm. It's carrying it on. It's having the warrior mentality to say, who's going to fund this? When's it going to happen? Who's going to be involved? And also, really importantly, that the involvement of people in the community doesn't stop at the top 10, Mm -hmm. that they're involved in saying, what does this research priority area look like? How are we turning it into something, Uh, et cetera? And so that the journey continues. And that's that's the important bit. I think that's such a wonderful point to make. And um, just to say that I think something that's wonderful about developing partnerships is that you get held accountable by your partners and you become hopefully very good, but critical when needed friends. And I think, yes, completely agree that this will just be the starting point. And again, something else that I think we've got a wonderful opportunity to start building and shaping as we go along this priority setting partnership work is about what do we need to do in terms of how we go about supporting further research? What do we need to do differently to make sure we continue to sustain the trust and involvement of those voices in the research that can continue and be spurred from that point on? I think if we do this well, and I'm very confident that we will do this well as a partnership, that this could be a template for use for other conditions in what were previously deemed hard to reach groups, because the sickle cell community is not hard to reach in any way whatsoever. So I think that this could be a good template. And I think as a partnership, we need to learn from it as well, because there may be things that we will learn from the process and we need to kind of take that learning and not dismiss it because I have to say not everything might be easier. So back to the warrior mentality, it might be, this isn't right. And we, you know, we haven't to be frightened of that, but we have to address it and listen carefully. So so I think there's a lot of learning that comes from this process beyond what we're seeking to achieve in terms of a longer term agenda that is appropriately funded. And if I can say, because it's part of this call to action, I think, you know, when we come out with those priorities, the challenge will be, where do you stand Genomics England and where are you going to put your hand in your pocket in relation to whatever may be relevant in that menu of priorities? I completely agree. And I think what we've got here is an opportunity for absolutely to be held accountable, as I said. And, you know, we have a role to play. We are extending, you know, the kind of areas that we are looking at in Genomics England. And I think that this is where we can start really developing really good partnerships to ensure that we are going about that in the best way possible. And we are doing everything we can as part of this whole ecosystem that, you know, we all need to do our bit to make sure that, you know, proper change does come and benefits to patients really does come as a result of that. 
I just wanted to wrap up our podcast now because essentially we've got World Sickle Day, which is the 19th of June. And I know that the theme for this year is progress. So, John, do you just want to give us a little insight into the kinds of things that are going on around sort of World Sickle Day, what people can maybe look out for, if there's anything that people can go and look for as a result of the kind of events and things that are happening around World Sickle Day this year? Thank you, Marie. I would encourage uh, people listening to uh, the podcast today to look on our website. We'll be doing a range of things which under this banner of making progress, but those range of things will include podcasts like we're doing today, radio interviews, and general information about areas of work. And the very fact that not many people even knew that there was a World Sickle Day. So it's taken the time to amplify that there's a World Sickle Day, and this will be for people not only in the UK, across the world, but it will be trying to show those snippets of progress that we have made and we plan to make, because all those things are, A, good for people who live with sickle cell, but equally importantly, it's good for people who might not have heard about sickle cell or knew anything about sickle cell. So the information will be on our website, but we'll also be using our social media platforms to promote lots of information around World Sickle Day. Thank you, John. And it's certainly just the start of the conversation, which is really the important take home here. You know, we're, we're just getting started. And I think that it would be wonderful maybe as we may be reaching towards the end of our priority setting partnership work together, maybe we can come back and share how we've got on with that and what we can really do with what we've learned. And I think that's another wonderful sort of word to use in this context. We're all learning together. So thank you so much, Ray, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you as always. I always learn so much from our conversations and I really look forward to working with you both. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it becomes more mainstream in healthcare and society. You can find out more about the work of the Sickle Cell Society at sicklecellsociety.org and the James Lind Alliance at jla.nihr.ac.uk. If you want to find out more about the work of Diverse Data and our Sickle Cell Programme, please visit genomicsengland.co.uk slash initiatives slash diverse hyphen data. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you would like us to interview, please write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And that if you've enjoyed listening, Giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. See you next time on The G Word.